Well, do you know that God knows us better than we know ourselves? Do you know that? I mean, do you really know that, that God knows us better than we know ourselves? So when he wants to draw someone to himself, uh, he's got a particular way that he's going to do that depending on the person. Uh, and if I were to pass the microphone around to every person in this room, you would all have a completely different story about how God drew you to himself because each of you is unique. Each of you uh, has your own story. And when, when God was drawing me to himself, uh, he used the proof of the resurrection to open my eyes to the truth. That was what I needed to know and what I needed to understand before I would come. And God knew that. And as we heard in the passage that was just read from, from Luke, uh, Jesus was killed. He was crucified. But then uh, on the Sunday, he rose again. He rose from the dead. Now, before I became a Christian, I really didn't think a whole lot about what that meant. Uh, I didn't think about his resurrection or consider the implications of it if it were actually true. Uh, I really didn't care, to be honest. Uh, I was happy ignoring God and just living the way I pleased. But that all changed in January of 2002 uh, when Molly's Uncle Kenny uh, died suddenly. Uh, he was about the age that I am now uh, with a wife and two teenage kids. And how unfair, I thought, how tragic this is uh, for Aunt Joan and for Maggie and Michael as two kids. The funeral was the most miserable day that you could ever imagine. Cold, windswept rain coming from every single direction. Uh, and since he was in the Air Force, uh, he received a military funeral. Uh, so, you know, the rifle shots, the flag being folded, the flag being handed to the widow, taps. I mean, one thing after another, uh, just the emotion of the entire thing. Uh, and I happened at that time of my life, I was under tremendous pressure myself uh, because I had a big trial coming up in my former work as a lawyer. Uh, I was taking on about 30 adversaries in, in a construction defects case and I was fairly confident uh, that I was going to take a real beating at this trial. And so I was under tremendous pressure uh, at the time. I was intimidated and, and in this emotionally fragile state that I was in, uh, standing there watching Aunt Joan receive the flag and listening to all that was going on around me, <clears throat> the emotions just got the better of me, and I broke. I started crying uncontrollably. I couldn't stop crying. The whole thing was so unfair uh, and so hopeless. But at that funeral, I saw undeniable hope in some of the people who were there. There were believers there who trusted that, that God had a plan, and they would see Uncle Kenny again someday in heaven. And that was a hope that I didn't have at the time. So at that time, I decided that instead of being an ignorant atheist, I was at least going to, to be an informed atheist, right? And, and that was my plan. So I decided that I was going to start reading the Bible. I was going to start reading some apologetics. And I don't know what I was hoping to convince myself of, either that he, it wasn't true or that it was, but at least I wanted to be informed. And I didn't realize at the time that God was using all of these circumstances to draw me to himself. And as I said, the thing that clinched it for me was the proof of the resurrection. And as I studied these things, I realized that, that the arguments that the women went to the wrong tomb or that the disciples stole the body are absolutely ridiculous. I mean, Jerusalem is a small little city. The women saw where he was buried on Friday. There's no way they forgot where he was buried two days later on Sunday. And these disciples, 
Uh, they had no uh, thought of stealing this body. They were cowering in an upper room, afraid that they were going to be the next ones to be crucified. They were not going to go steal that body. And besides, that body was being guarded by Roman soldiers, the most elite army uh, that had ever existed uh, up into that day. And so uh, there's no way they stole the body. And what motive would they have anyway? Why haul around a dead body uh, and say uh, that the body is alive or to hide it somewhere? Uh, all of these apostles, as you know, died an excruciating death except for John uh, because they continued to testify that they had seen Jesus alive. Why wouldn't they recant their testimony when they're facing the edge of the sword if what they saw was not true, if they had stolen the body? And Jesus was resurrected and appeared to more than 500 witnesses, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. So I was absolutely convinced that the tomb was empty and that Jesus indeed rose from the dead. Now the next thing is, so what? So what? What difference does it make, right? Well, that's what we're going to talk about today, because uh, you know, I, was, I was believing the facts, but there needed to be some theology behind it for it to make sense to me, because the resurrection is only significant if we understand why it happened and what it means. And so that's why I've chosen this passage today, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And, and we're going to start out talking about our hopeless condition uh, before we receive Jesus Christ. Uh, this is why we need the gospel so badly, because our condition on our own is hopeless. And then we'll talk about God's grace in salvation. And then we'll talk about the means of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And then finally, our, our God's purpose for us in our salvation. So let's begin by talking about the human condition, verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in your offenses and sins, in which you previously walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, too, we all previously lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of our flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the rest. Now, Paul wrote this letter to the Ephesian church. This is a church that's made up mostly of Gentiles. And in this section, Paul is comparing their condition before they knew the Lord Jesus Christ with their condition after they knew the Lord Jesus Christ. So these verses are before, before they knew the Lord Jesus Christ. And everything that Paul wrote to the Ephesian church in these verses applies equally to us before we knew Jesus Christ and to anybody who today still does not know Jesus Christ. So we are all born sinners, and we all sin, and without Jesus, we are spiritually dead, and we are headed to eternity in hell. And so in these opening verses, Paul described their former condition before Jesus. They were dead in their offenses and in their sins. He didn't mean that they were mostly dead and a little bit alive. That's not what he meant. He meant that they were completely, totally stone-cold dead, absolutely dead. They, they were dead. And dead people can't do anything, right? Dead people don't do anything. Dead people can't do anything unless somehow God intervenes. They remain dead unless God intervenes. And so the death that Paul is talking about here, uh, this is not physical death, obviously, right? Because Paul had written this letter to living beings who could read the letter and understand what it said. Uh, Paul is talking about people who had at one point been spiritually dead. They were spiritually dead. And there are two ways to be spiritually dead. One way is because of our sins. You see that? You were dead in your sins, your offenses and sins. 
those are synonyms, and basically what they mean is missing the mark, uh, falling short of God's standards. That's what sin and offenses are. Now, God demands absolute sinless perfection. If I were to stand up here with a glass of water, and I put one drop of arsenic in it, and I stirred the whole thing up, and then I started to hand that glass around, how many of you would drink it? I hope none, right? None of you would drink it. The whole entire glass is contaminated by the one drop of arsenic. So that is how it is with us too. Uh, One sin contaminates us completely. No one who has sinned can enter into God's presence. Romans 3 says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Romans 6 says the wages of sin is death. So we are dead because of our offenses and sins. And we're also dead because we are born with a sin nature. You see that in verse 3. When Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden, sin and death entered into the world. Adam and Eve had once lived in harmony with God, but now they lived in rebellion against God. And Adam transmitted that rebellious nature, that sin nature, to every single person who has ever been born because we are his seed. We are his progeny. And that's why we are, verse 3, by nature we are children of wrath. So we are doubly dead. We have a sin nature and we sin. And Paul mentioned three ways that we sin in these verses. Three ways that we sin. The first way is that we walk according to the course of this world. Remember last week we were talking about what this world means. This world is, is the world system that is under Satan's control, uh, that, that Satan uh, dominates, uh, which is rebellious against God uh, and opposes God's will. Now, Paul frequently uses the word walk metaphorically uh, to describe our lifestyle, our habitual lifestyle. And so what he's talking about here, uh, that that we walked according to the course of this world, this is frequent uh, habitual sin uh, committed by people who are spiritually dead, who are under Satan's influence, uh, who oppose God, who don't know God, and the one whom God sent, Jesus Christ, and they don't even know that they're spiritually dead. So they walk according to the course of this world. A second way that Paul says they sin is that they walk according to the power, or to the ruler of the power of the air. Now that's Satan. They are governed by Satan. They're walking according to the ruler of the power of the air. Not only that, but they're also governed by their own sin nature. And Paul called obeying their sin nature the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. That's the sin nature. And as they they are living their lives that way, this is more than just negligence, uh, negligently disobeying God's commands. This is is open defiance of him. It's, It's outright, willful disobedience. And that was me before Jesus. And that was you before Jesus. That was these Ephesians before Jesus. And so they walked according to the course of the world. They walked according to the ruler of the power of the air. And unbelievers were all too happy to engage in this behavior. Verse 3, they acted according to the lusts of, their, of our flesh and according to the desires of their flesh and mind. So they're engaging in this sin openly, hostily, willfully, and happily. And the same is true of us before Christ, before we became believers. We walked according to the course of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, and according to our own lusts. And so uh, every bit of us is contaminated by sin, just like the poison that I mentioned in the cup of water. And so God has declared us spiritually dead uh, with no hope of life. 
just as the rest. The rest means every single person who has ever been born, because we are all born with this condition. Now, what gives God the right? Who is God to say that we are dead in our sins? What gives God the right to say that? Well, he is the creator of the universe, right? And not only that, he's your creator. He is my creator. And so as our creator, uh, he has authority over us. And so when we are disobedient to him, when we uh, don't obey him, when we don't follow him, uh, he has the right to judge us. And he demands that we be perfectly holy because he is perfectly holy. And so he has the right to judge our disobedience and punish sin. And he has declared us all guilty. And what defenses can we offer? Well, none. None of us can claim that we haven't sinned because we have. And none of us can claim that, you know, if I were in Adam's shoes, I wouldn't have done that because we would have. We all would have sinned under those circumstances. And besides, dead people don't even offer excuses for their sins. They're dead, so they can't. So we are not innocent victims. We, are, we actively and purposely opposed God's rule over us, and spiritual death is the result. And dead people can do nothing to change their lost condition. So if you're here today, if you're hearing my voice, and you have not received Jesus as your Savior, I have some very bad news for you. You are spiritually dead. You can't good works your way out of it. You can't argue your way out of it. You are helpless, hopeless, lost, and you are dead in your sins. This is the human condition. This is the human predicament. We are born spiritually dead and we sin. We have no ability to save ourselves and no hope because we inherited Adam's sin nature and because we sinned. That's the bad news. But I have good news for you today. I have very, very good news for you today uh, because uh, God has intervened. Uh, with the gospel. And the word gospel means good news. Uh, so God can change your spiritual condition. He can take you from spiritually lost to spiritually alive through Jesus Christ. He did it for me. And so I now proclaim the good news of the gospel to you. God's grace and salvation, verses 4 through 7. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our wrongdoings, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the boundless riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You know, maybe the two greatest words in the whole Bible are, but God. Have you ever thought about that? But God. They're all over the place in the Bible. Uh, we are spiritually dead, but God. We are in a hopeless condition, but God. We are doomed to hell, but God. God can do anything. God can change even the most hardened heart, and I know because he changed mine. And so how does God do this? Well, Paul named two attributes of God and three things that God did in these verses uh, to save our souls. So first, the two attributes. Uh, the first one is that God is rich in mercy. Mercy. Mercy is God's compassion to sinners who are in this con condition of spiritual deadness. Uh, and mercy is, is God withholding the punishment that we deserve. And throughout the rest of this passage, Paul is talking about how God pours out his mercy uh, and offers sinners a way out of this human predicament that I talked about earlier. It's by his mercy. 
And this word rich means abundant, uh, generous. It, it's not uh, water dripping from a faucet kind of mercy, right? It's Niagara Falls mercy. It's more mercy than we can possibly handle. It's enough mercy to save every single sinner uh, on this planet. So God is merciful. And the second attribute that Paul talks about is God's love. Uh, God is merciful because he is love. That's why he's merciful. And, and though we're not deserving, he loves us so much that, and, and desires so much to give us mercy that he devised a way to help us out of the human predicament so we could escape the human predicament and eternity in hell. And, and so here's how God solved the dilemma for us uh, by the three things God did. First thing he did is he made us alive together with Christ Remember that in the first three verses, uh, Paul was talking about their spiritual condition before Jesus Christ. They were dead, just as we were before we knew Jesus. But now God made them alive, just as God has made Jesus alive after he was dead. So Jesus' resurrection was physical, uh, but our resurrection is spiritual. Uh, making us alive means, means to uh, regenerate us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Regenerate is kind of a theological word that means to make our spirits alive so we can respond to God's offer of salvation through Jesus Christ. Dead people cannot respond but regenerated people can respond to the draw of the Holy Spirit. And so our response in faith to God's drawing is sometimes called being born again. Remember in John chapter 3, uh, Jesus was talking with Nicodemus, and Nicodemus said to Jesus, uh, how can a person be born again when he is old? He cannot enter into his mother's womb and be born a second time, can he? And Jesus replied, truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is born of water and of spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus is talking about this second birth, this regeneration. Uh, this is God making us alive together with Christ. And then the second thing God did is he raised us up with him. Uh, formerly, we were dead in our sins and destined to hell, but now God has changed the equation and he has changed our destination. He has regenerated us. He has caused us to believe and now he has raised us up uh, from eternal death into eternal life. And that's why Jesus' resurrection is so hopeful because it shows us that if God can raise Jesus, well, he can raise us too. So he raised us up. How, how does he do this? He raises us up and he seats us in the heavenly places. This is the third thing God does. This is written as if it's an accomplished fact, right? It is a work completed, uh, even though we remain here on earth. So positionally, God has declared believers not guilty, uh, justified in God's sight, and numbered among his saints. So God looks at us as, as, as if we are children of love and not children of wrath. He removes our guilt, and in its place, he gives us Jesus' righteousness. So our place in heaven is secure. Today, our place in heaven is secure. And God does this, as it says in verse 5. How? By grace. It is by grace you have been saved. Mercy, on the one hand, is God withholding judgment that we deserve. But grace is the other side of the coin, giving us eternal life that we don't deserve. And so even though we deserve death, God gives us eternal life with him. Romans 5.8 says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, enemies of God, Christ died for us. Imagine sending your own son to die 
to save your enemies. We would never do that, right? Not in a million years. None of us would do that. And yet God would. But God, right? God is not like us. He's completely other than us. He's holy. And we can't love like God, and we can't give grace like God. But God's love and God's grace are both limitless. And so God set the bar of holiness at perfection, and then Jesus fulfilled that bar of holiness for us because we couldn't do it ourselves. And so we get to heaven because we have placed our faith in him. And why did God do this? Verse 7, so that in the ages to come, he might show the boundless riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So after Jesus comes again, God is going to usher in a whole new kingdom where we will live with Jesus Christ as our king. Now, human governments are full of sinners, no matter which side of the aisle you are on. So there's no hope in government. There is no hope in, in, in anything that humans can do for us. The only thing that we can rely on is Jesus Christ. He will rule perfectly. He will show us all the riches of his grace when he brings his kingdom. We can't beat that for love, mercy, and grace. Uh, and so uh, this is how God has saved us. It is, it is by his grace that we are saved. And it is also through faith. So let's talk about the means of salvation in verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Paul wrote these words, you have been saved in what's called the perfect tense. The perfect tense indicates past action with continuing benefits that, that continue uh, to, to uh, reap benefits for us. So believers have been saved in the past uh, and the benefits continue uh, with salvation in the present and God still in the future will reveal all of his riches and kindness, uh, all of the glory of salvation in the future. So we need to know, how do we get these benefits? How do we reap the benefits of Jesus Christ dying on the cross for our sins? Well, it's by faith. Faith is what gives us access to all of these blessings. So faith starts with knowing the objective facts, right? Uh, I say this every week. Jesus Christ died on the cross and he rose from the dead. I expected a little better out of you. Jesus Christ <laughs> died on the cross and... Thank you, boy. Well, that's good. I'm glad you know that. But even demons know that, right? Even demons know that and believe that. So I'm not calling you all demons, uh, but the demons know that. Uh, we need more than that. We need just an acknowledgement of facts. Uh, I can acknowledge that, that a chair has four legs, right? And a back and a seat. And I can say, that's a chair and it looks pretty sturdy. It looks like it'll hold me up. But I don't demonstrate my faith in that chair until I actually sit in it, right? That's when I say, I have faith that this chair can hold me up. When we place our faith in Jesus Christ for our salvation, we don't merely agree to the fact that he died and rose from the dead. Uh, we acknowledge our own pitiful, hopeless condition as helpless sinners, and we place our faith in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. So that is the so what of the resurrection. That's the so what of the resurrection. That's the theology that I was looking for when I first realized that Jesus definitely did rise from the dead. The tomb was empty. There is no other explanation for this. So what? This is the so what. 
Here's what the resurrection means. We were sinners, lost in our sin, with no hope of saving ourselves, but God wanted to offer us a way out of this human predicament. But how can he? God is holy, and he is just, and he must punish sin. So how can he declare us not guilty and still be holy at the same time? Well, what he did was he and Jesus agreed on a plan. Jesus came to earth. He inhabited a human body. He lived a life holy, without any sin. And then God punished him for our sin and the sin of all humanity. He punished him in our place. So God did not overlook sin. God still maintained his justice and his holiness. God laid every sin ever committed on Jesus' back. And Jesus carried his cross to Golgotha, but he also carried our sin there as well. In the Old Testament, uh, people were allowed to offer sacrifices, uh, animal sacrifices, to atone for sin. But they had to be offered for every single sin, and so the sacrifices were never ending. But Jesus became the final sacrifice, the final offering, uh, the one that pleased God. And so it is the final sacrifice that ever had to be made for sin. When Jesus hung on the cross, uh, his last breath as he hung there, he said, It is finished. What is finished? Well, all the work that had to be done for, for God to save helpless sinners was done, completed on the cross. Jesus' sacrifice was enough, and God showed that he was satisfied with Jesus' payment by raising him from the dead. That's what the resurrection means. And so God's promise to us is that if we believe in Jesus, God will raise us up as well from the dead, never to die again, but to live eternally with him. Now, I know it's not the Christmas season, but I always return to this Christmas hymn that I love so much, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. This is how it's said. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. He gives them second birth through his death and his resurrection and through our faith in Jesus and the resurrection for our eternal life. Jesus took our punishment so God would not have to punish us. God maintains his holiness and his justice by punishing Jesus as our substitute in our place and then raises Jesus from the dead to show his satisfaction with the sacrifice. So brothers and sisters, that is the so what. That is the significance of the resurrection. That's the gospel. If you've never heard it before, uh, if you've never read it before, uh, if you've never believed it before, it's simply this. Jesus Christ rose, died for our sins and rose from the dead. And so when we admit that we are sinners, repent and believe, God charges our sin debt to Jesus' account, and he charges uh, Jesus' righteousness, credits Jesus' righteousness to our account. Is that the best deal ever or what? That is the best deal ever. He charges all of our sin to Jesus' account and puts all of Jesus' righteousness on our account. You can't get a better deal than that. And all we have to do is put our faith in Jesus. And he offers this grace to all. All we have to do is receive the gift. And here's how you do it, if you're wondering how you do it. You simply pray to God, acknowledging your sin and your need for a Savior. You repent, which means to turn away from your sin and to ask Jesus to save you from the penalty you owe. You place your faith in him alone for salvation. Now, if you've never done that, I'm just going to pray a simple prayer right now. And you pray along with me if you've never prayed this prayer before, if you've never received Jesus as your Savior. It's just simple. It goes like this. Uh, Lord God... 
I recognize that I am a sinner. Lord God, I realize that I need salvation from my sins. And Lord God, I thank you for Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. I ask for forgiveness. I turn from my sins, Lord, and I put all my hope, faith, and trust in Jesus Christ for my salvation. Lord, forgive me, and I pledge my life to following you. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you've prayed that prayer along with me for the first time, if you've never prayed that prayer before, welcome to the family of God. We rejoice with you here, and the angels in heaven rejoice at the salvation of any sinner. This is such good news. Well, what now? What should you do now? Well, tell someone, first of all, tell someone. We would all love to rejoice with you. Then join a Bible-believing, a Bible-teaching church and read your Bible. Find some Christians who can help you, who can guide you, and pray a lot for God to reveal his will for his life for you. God has a plan for your life, and we read about that in Ephesians chapter 2.10, the last verse of our passage. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. You know, this word workmanship means a masterpiece. It means perfection. This is God's handiwork. Uh, we are his handiwork. We are his masterpiece. Do you think of yourself as a masterpiece? You are in God's sight when you have believed in Jesus for your salvation. That's what we are when we are reborn. God recreated us in Christ Jesus. He created us physically in our mother's womb, but he recreated us in Christ Jesus. That indicates our second birth. And so we are born again to do the good works which God has prepared in advance for us to do. And so just like faith is a gift from God, so are these good works that God has prepared in advance for us to do. And so we should spend the rest of our lives as believers uh, doing these good works that God has prepared for us to do out of love for him and out of gratitude to God who saved us. Now, let's just close with a few applications. The first one is this, that God's grace is available to everyone. You may be sitting here in this room thinking God could never save me. My sins are so bad. You don't know what I've done. Well, I'm here to tell you that that is a lie from the devil. That's a lie from the devil. No matter what you've done, God will save you if you've prayed that simple prayer. And he will never make you pay the penalty for the sin you owe because Jesus already paid the penalty for the sins that you ever committed and ever will commit. And so God doesn't punish the same sin twice. He, twice. he punished Jesus so he doesn't have to punish us. And so when God looks at us, when God looks at you, he sees his perfect son. And so God's grace is available to everyone. It's available to you. It's available to you. It's there for the asking. Grace is earned, and not earned, it's given. Grace is not earned, it's given. Don't think you can get into heaven because you are a good person. You can't. No one can. No one deserves it. Uh, if you think that you can stand before God with your resume that looks something like this, I'm a good person. I gave money. I went to the church. I never killed anyone. I'm definitely better than my neighbor. Uh, if you stand before God with that as your resume, you know what he's going to see? This is what he'll see. Relied on himself, rejected my son. That's what God will see when you show him your resume of good works. You don't want to stand before God with your resume. You want to stand before God with this resume. Trusted Jesus for salvation, who is God in the flesh, who lived a sinless life, who died for my sin, who rose from the dead, who paid my penalty. That's the resume you want to stand before God with. 
Every other religion requires people to earn salvation by works. And Christianity says Christ has already done the work. All we have to do is believe. Salvation is not by works. It's by grace through faith. And lastly, don't delay. None of us is promised tomorrow. The Bible says that this life is a vapor. We're here today. We're gone tomorrow. God never promised us long life. He promised us eternal life if we believe. So if you die today without receiving Jesus as your Savior, it will be too late. You will be separated from him for all eternity. So I implore you to receive him now. At Grace Redeemer, we often sing uh, this hymn called, O Come to the Altar. I love this song. Will you sing it with me? Are you burdened and broken within? Overwhelmed by the weight of your sin, Jesus is calling. Oh, come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness is bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. This is good news, brothers and sisters. He is risen. He is risen. He is risen. Praise the Lord. God, we thank you for this incredible day where we celebrate uh, the most important event in human history, that Christ has risen from the dead and saved the souls of all who put their faith in him. Uh, Lord, I pray that uh, if there's anyone who has heard my voice today who has not yet put their faith in Jesus, they, they have done so today, Lord. Uh, Lord, we just want everybody in this room and everyone within the sound of my voice to be saved. And Lord, we thank you for your provision. Lord, we ask that you do a mighty work now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.